Welcome to Talk to Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And I am so pleased that we could have with us today Michael Zweig, who is Professor Emeritus of Economics and the founding director of the Center for the Study of the Working of Working Class Life at the State University of New York, SUNY at Stony Brook. Professor, thank you so much for being with us. I was particularly pleased you could be with us today because I've been wanting to ask you this question. Donald Trump last week in a classic projection of Trump said, and he's, he, I said Trump, am opposed to fascism and communism and I would never engage in any, you know, authoritarian kinds of practices. It was really quite astounding the way he engaged in projection. But what struck me was the way that he had this equivalency of communism on the left and fascism on the right. And much as I abhor and uh, fear Donald Trump, I think he does have a political sense of what resonates with a lot of people. And I think that putting uh, this, this equivalency of communism on the left and fascism on the right does resonate with, with many people across the country. In your book, in your just published book, Class, Race, and Gender, Challenging the Injuries and Divisions of Capitalism, you don't shy away from uh, left critiques and your involvement in the past uh, with the various communist uh, aligned groups, or at least uh, identified as such. And I'm wondering whether you think that this fascism on the right, communism on the left, still resonates politically and, so, and in our social fabric. What are your thoughts about that? Well, it's an old uh, story, and it's an old uh, and very false equivalence. Uh, uh, communism was oriented towards advancing the interests of working people. Fascism has always been oriented towards crushing the interests and the lives of working people. So th there's no way that they are equivalent, even though communist regimes and fascist regimes have been oppressive and repressive uh, to their populations. But to make an equivalence between them is is just completely wrong historically and politically. But I do think that the uh, rise of interest in socialism in this country is a very real thing, and Donald Trump can say what he wants about communism and and uh, social and and uh, fascism. The fact is that no one's talking about communism in this country, and the social movements that are rising, and what I've been talking about in, in this book, has to do with the development of, of socialism and socialist politics, which are politics that advance the interests of working people. Uh, Donald Trump is, in fact, the representative of the fascist uh, movements, which do have a history in this country, and he is continuing that history, and very clear that he wants to be a dictator. He says so. He doubles down on it, and he says he wants to use the government to repress his enemies, and that is, I think, a very dangerous signal that we should take seriously. I am wondering why, at the time when Bernie Sanders, and you do discuss this some in your book, Class, Race, and Gender, Challenging the Injuries and Divisions of Capitalism, why it is that, in fact, 
at the same time that there is, I think, this deep-seated and unmovable antipathy towards communism, at the same time, the American public seems to be willing to engage in a discussion and consideration of socialism and democratic socialism as Bernie Sanders espoused it. Is, is that uh, inconsistent in your view in some way or not? Well, I think that what Bernie Sanders did was to give specific and concrete meaning policy meaning to what it means to be a socialist or a democratic socialist. Let's have Medicare for all. Let's have housing for people. Let's have uh, free public higher education so people don't have to go into debt for 30 years after they get done with college. These are things that are very concrete, very specific, and all have to do with advancing the interests and the needs of working people. And so I think that what Bernie did in his campaigns was to raise those questions in very concrete and specific ways, which is the way it should be done. And I think that many, many people, young people in particular, who don't have the sort of poison of anti-communism uh, sort of steeped into them the way that older people uh, of our generation tend to have, I think that it's a very, very interesting development. And I think that uh, my book, uh, Class, Race, and Gender, Challenging the uh, Divisions and uh, Injuries of Capitalism, that's a book that really tries to explore, again, very specifically and concretely, what are the interests of working people, that working people constitute a class, that there are classes in this country, and that the working class has a relationship of adversary to the corporate elites and to the capitalist class, or what Bernie sometimes calls the billionaire class. That's, I think, a discussion that needs to be unpacked, and that's what I've tried to do in this book, uh, integrating into it a discussion of, of race and white supremacy and uh, misogyny and, and uh, patriarchy. I was uh, particularly uh, moved by one passage in your book, where you say, in essence, I'm going to talk in the next couple of chapters about some economic uh, theories. Don't let your eyes glaze over. This is accessible and it's really interesting, which I appreciate it um, <laughs> because, you know, economics is the dismal science and you are a professor of economics. Uh, here's, here's one aspect of your book that really did strike me. You don't shy away from using the term working class uh, and you use workers. I think uh, that most Americans uh, try, and, and you say, wait a second, we need to be very skeptical of this term middle class. So what do you mean by the working class? And what is it about this term middle class that makes you uncomfortable in your analysis? I think that when we talk about class in this country, most often we talk about it in terms of income that there's a sort of middle income level of people, there's the middle of the income distribution, and then there's a fringe of poor people at the bottom and rich people at the top. So we have an income distribution of middle class fringed by rich and poor, and most people in that formulation are middle class. I think that there's a problem there because, to me, what's interesting and important about class is that it is a question of power, not income or wealth. Income and wealth follow from having power, but the basic condition of class uh, interaction and class existence is a relationship of power. 
of those people who, in a capitalist society, do the work, uh, working people who are not just industrial workers but call center workers and people who work in uh, as EMTs and people who work as home health aides. That's 62% of the population. If you look uh, at the uh, data for occupations, 62% of people in this uh, workforce of ours basically go to work, do their job under more or less close supervision, go home or go to another job, but they don't really have much power at work unless they're in a union and they can exercise collective power. So who does have the power? Well, the power resides with the people who run the businesses, with the boards of directors, the senior executives, and that is the capitalist class that is on the other side of the power relationship of workers. That, to me, is a much more uh, enlightening and much more important way to think about class. Now, there is a middle class, and that middle class is in the power grid between labor and capital. And those are small business owners, professional people, managers, supervisors. That's about a third or 35% or so, 36% of the labor force. Um, So I do think that when uh, President Biden, for example, goes to the picket line of the uh, auto workers in uh, Warren, Michigan, and talks about how unions bring people into the middle class, I think that that's wrong. I think that unions bring workers into a better life, but they're still workers. They're still the working class that's in those auto plants. And Sean Fain, who's the president of the UAW, understands that very well and talks openly and clearly about his members and the broad other population of working people as the working class. Now, when I first wrote a book called The Working Class Majority, America's Best Kept Secret, which was published in 2000, and I wrote it uh, in 1998, 1999, a lot of people in the labor movement and elsewhere just told me you can't talk about class in this country. It just, you know, will be seen as a sort of antiquarian conversation from the 19th century. And I said, well, there's no substitute for that word. There's no substitute for understanding that relationship of power. And gradually, working class has come into use more generally in this country. Uh, in uh, First as an adjective, uh, there are working class neighborhoods or working class jobs, but then as a noun, that there is a working class. And I think that uh, we now need to bring into the conversation the existence of the capitalist class as the other pole of that power relationship and then figure out how race and gender, which are also issues of power, better uh, are understood in the context of class. We are speaking with Michael Zweig. He is Professor Emeritus of Economics and Founding Director of the Center for the Study of Working Class Life at SUNY Stony Brook, the State University of New York. His new book is titled Class, Race, and Gender, Challenging the Injuries and Divisions of Capitalism. I want to share with you, Professor, uh, a very brief story about something that happened to me when I was uh, canvassing uh, on behalf of uh, Hillary Clinton after I had been canvassing on behalf of Bernie Sanders in that presidential race. I was talking to a person doing door knocking and he told me that he had been supporting uh, Bernie Sanders in the primary. And I said, great, me too. And he said, and I'm supporting Donald Trump in the general election. And 
he was not alone by any stretch. It was the first time I'd had a face-to-face -face conversation with someone with that position. Um, he was articulate. He was, he was, I thought, very engaged. And I thought he was uh, really somehow had been sucked into taking a political position and casting a vote that was adverse, directly adverse to his interests as a worker. And he is not alone. There's a lot of people who feel like that in the United States, and I'm wondering if you could help me understand that phenomenon. I think what happened is that uh, the Democratic Party, which used to be in the days of the New Deal and the period of uh, labor reform and then racial reform and gender reform in the 60s and 70s, the Democratic Party was a party of progress, and it was a party that spoke to the needs and interests of working people. Uh, however imperfectly, uh, that was where the progressive thrust was in American politics. With Bill Clinton, that changed, and we ended welfare as we knew it. We had deregulation, which actually started in the Carter administration, uh, with the deregulation of airlines and trucking in 1978. So I think that what people uh, who work for a living in, in working class positions and working class jobs who understand that they're uh, vulnerable, who understand that, they, that uh, they are facing powers that are much greater than their own unless they get into a union. Uh, I think those people are feeling like you, the, your person who you encountered that uh, no one's looking out for them. Bernie comes forward and he is looking out for them and he's very clear about it. Donald Trump comes along and says, you know, these politicians, they're all a bunch of corrupt jokers. They don't represent you. They don't represent anybody. I will do that. I alone can fix it. Well, you know, uh, people want to hear that. They want to know somebody's looking out for them. And the Democratic Party, including Hillary Clinton, who uh, talked about baskets of deplorables, uh, you know, was very clear that uh the Democratic Party no longer represents the interests of working people. And it's all in bed with the uh, tech moguls and with the, you know, Hollywood uh, stars. But when it comes to ordinary people, you don't see them. And their policies don't help. So I think what uh, your uh, person that you were talking to, uh, that's what he was dealing with and I hear it myself when I go talk or when I'm involved uh, in a, uh, for over 30 years as a volunteer firefighter on Long Island and in, uh, in the firehouse you hear it all the time uh, of course you also hear a lot of racism you hear a lot of concern that uh, you know the country is being taken over by other people and we need to stop that and Trump of course champions that um, but the idea that uh, Bernie voters would go for Trump, uh, not out of out of uh, racial animus, but out of just an animus towards the political elites, that seems to me to be something which is widespread and which the Democratic Party better take seriously pretty quickly. And that's why in my book I talk about uh, bringing into the Democratic Party a real working class and racial justice and gender justice uh, organized presence an organized force within the Democratic Party to take it back and move it into a progressive direction. 
We are speaking with Professor Michael Zweig. His new book, Class, Race, and Gender, Challenging the Injuries and Divisions of Capitalism. We'll continue this conversation right after this. Listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Sunday mornings on WHMP means polka. Celebrate the Valley's proud Polish heritage with Polka Carousel. Every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, TZ brings his award-winning Polka Carousel to the airwaves of the Valley. Playing the Polka Classics and the latest Polka Hits. There are Polka Hits? Brought to you by Saluzniak Funeral Home, Northampton's funeral home for over 110 years and four generations of unparalleled thoughtful memorial care. It's Polka Carousel, WHMP. Soup, it's the thing, perhaps the only thing you want to eat. You know, those times when you want something to eat and that something has to be a bowl of hot soup. They make three soups every day at Paul and Elizabeth's restaurant. One is usually a bean soup, maybe lentil, red bean, or split pea. One is always Paul and Elizabeth's signature fish chowder. So rich and creamy, it's kind of hard to believe it's dairy-free. Go to Paul and Elizabeth's Inside Thorns in Northampton. Have a nice bowl of soup. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Pioneer Valley's newspaper covering Holyoke to Deerfield and Belchertown to the Hilltowns, was awarded New England Newspaper of the Year for their local news coverage. Home delivered six days a week and online 24-7. Try their digital-only subscription options and stay connected with your community wherever you are. Pick up a copy on newsstands, subscribe, or visit gazettenet.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, covering the Pioneer Valley since 1786. When you're going through a tough time and need to talk with a mental health care provider as soon as possible, walk into ServiceNet's clinic at 50 Pleasant Street in downtown Northampton any Wednesday between 10 and 2. We'll see you right away. Or call ServiceNet anytime to make an appointment. Talk therapy, medication management, and other specialized treatments. ServiceNet's team works together to provide the care you need all in one place. Walk in Wednesdays 10 to 2 or call anytime. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Michael Zweig, Professor Emeritus of Economics and Founding Director of the Center for the Study of Working Class Life at SUNY State University of New York at Stony Brook. His new book is Class, Race, and Gender, Challenging the Injuries and Divisions of Capitalism. And while we were off the air, Dan Torres, you raised a question with Professor Zweig. Could you pose it again so we can bring our listeners into our conversation? Yes, yeah, so my question is pretty simple. Um, how does the working class overcome the high cost of living that we're experiencing today? Well, the high cost of living is coming down. Uh, it's not, you know, the, the rate of increase is coming down. The, the Federal Reserve thinks that a 2% increase in the cost of living every year is reasonable largely because the quality of the products tend to increase over time. Um, but I think that uh, the inflation that we're experiencing is a real problem, uh, particularly on, on food costs. Uh, both uh, in restaurants, in uh, fast food places, and also, of course, in the grocery store. 
the way to combat that is to raise wages, and we see that that is going on. But I think it's also important to understand that the reason we have this problem right now, uh, we have had it, although it's it's uh, getting uh, easier now, the reason why we have it is because there was this uh, COVID epidemic and there was a huge amounts of money that were thrown into the economy in order to get people to survive that epi- uh, that epidemic uh, and the joblessness that came from it and the uh, difficulties that people had in their lives during that uh, terrible time in 2020, 2021, 2022. So I think that uh, the cause of this problem is something which was extremely beneficial and important for working people. And I think that we tend to forget that or only look at this difficulty. Now, the difficulty is attenuating. I've seen, I just was driving up from uh, Washington and saw gas prices less than $3 a gallon. Well, that's way down from $4.40 a gallon when it really was raising tremendous amounts of problems and issues. So I think that the way to deal with this problem is first to understand that its origins were in policies that were extremely important for working people, and two, to understand that the way to uh, to confront it is to get wage increases, which is what unions are supposed to do and what unions do do when they're powerful and when they're organized. Uh, and that's also important to understand that we are experiencing a reduction in the in the rate of inflation, a substantial reduction. Uh, so I think that, uh, you know, help is on the way, but the way to do it is to uh, organize and win wage increases that can bring back those standard of living that working people deserve. I, I'd like to stay with this for another moment, if we might, Professor Michael Zwag. Uh, you write in your book, when I think back on my lifetime of activism, activism, I admit I made some pretty stupid mistakes along the way. You go on to say, we treated people who agreed with us on almost everything as bitter enemies because we disagreed about something. And I want to have your perspective on how people who share common values and a common outlook and many aspects of life and the economy and uh, social issues and fairness and equity and diversity managed to fail uh, in policy objectives over and over again. That said, when you look back at the fight for 15, uh, which was greeted initially as, oh, that will never happen, it has actually been, in many instances, a huge success. Wages have increased in many industries and many sectors of the economy. I'm wondering how you reconcile those two, I think, seemingly very divergent approaches or uh, perspectives. Well, the uh, sort of sectarianism of the left is a well-known phenomenon. You also see that sectarianism on the right, too. Uh, and. Uh, the problem there is just people thinking that they have the answer and there is no other answer and there's no other way but their way and everything is uh, the most important thing. And uh, what uh, you need to do to overcome that is to really keep your eyes on the prize and figure out what is it that we're really trying to do and who are our friends in this battle and who do we really have as a target of our struggle. 
And it turns out that to win, you need to narrow the target and widen the alliance that confronts that target. And so I think that that basic lesson is brought into a thing like the Fight for 15, which was a very broad movement that went out into the communities, like the Chicago Teachers Union, which went out into Chicago communities to win support for what they were doing and show that they were there for the community, not just for themselves. And I think that that's the kind of politics that we need to do. And uh, again, to keep your eyes on the prize. What is this? What are you trying to do? And then unite as many people around that as you can possibly unite, and deal with the differences by combining your forces in a common struggle. That's the only way to overcome those differences is in the course of actual struggle for things. You write in your book. Quote, capitalism develops useful technologies. It creates enormous productive capacity. It creates realms of personal freedom unheard of in earlier societies. And you say none of these creations should be considered in the abstract. I'm wondering from your perspective as a longtime political activist, what you see as the next fight, what you see as the next possibility for reforming and or revolutionizing this society in which we live? Well, right now, I think that progressive forces in this country are on the defensive. We're uh, subject to very serious attack from the right wing, which really dates back to the Powell Memorandum in 1971 when Lewis Powell wrote for the, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce that said at in 1971, look, the system is under attack it's hard for us now to remember or for younger people to even imagine what it was like to have the corporate elite on the run and in the defensive mode all over the country in every dimension of life. And Lewis Powell said, wait a second, we have to defend the system, not just each industry, but all the industries have to get together. And that then led to the forming in the 1970s of the main institutions that have engineered the attack on working people and have engineered all the clawbacks of uh, the existing gains that people made in labor and civil rights and women's rights. And so you got the founding of the uh, Cato Institute and of the Federalist Society that got us all these Supreme Court uh, and, and federal court appointees that are reactionary. It got us the Heritage Foundation. It got us the American Legislative Exchange Council. <clears throat> so the, we are now on the defensive in a long process in which the capitalists are trying to take back every gain that working people and black people and women have ever made. And that puts us very much in need of our own class-wide resistance. And that's what I'm trying to do in this book, is to formulate how <clears throat> we might figure out to bring together a labor movement, a civil rights movement, a black liberation movement, a women's movement, an LGBTQ movement, all environmental issues, all of which have their root at the foundation of co corporate power and capitalist functioning. And that's what I think we need to do in order to address the real issues that we're faced with right now. <clears throat> Are you encouraged by the 
victories of the labor, labor movement, which really seems once again to be a movement that have occurred recently? I think that what we saw in the uh, auto strike, which was a very creative way to do things, very different from what the UAW has ever done in the past, I think that's just an excellent example. And again, Sean Fain, who understands class dynamics and class relations very clearly, um, was instrumental in bringing that about. And of course, he was elected for the first time in UAW history by the membership as a, as a whole, rather than just by elected delegates. So I think that, you know, Sean Fain and uh, the leadership in the Teamsters, the leadership in, in the uh, Starbucks union organizing and the Amazon organizing, all that is very, very encouraging. There's still a long way to go. And I think that it's very important that um, that we keep control of the National Labor Relations Board, for example, and the kind of rulings that they make. So I do think that it's important that uh, the Democratic Party continues to run the government as weak and as, uh, as insubstantial as their support often is. Something like the National Labor Relations Board is important, and of course, court appointees are important. So I think that on that score, it is important to get uh, uh, to keep and maintain Democratic Party control over those institutions. We are going to leave it there. We have been speaking with Professor Michael Zwag. His new book is Class, Race, and Gender, Challenging the Injuries and Divisions of Capitalism, available at your local independent bookstore. Professor Michael Zwag, thank you so much for this conversation today. We really appreciate your time, your insight, and your book. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Seems like it's illegal to fight for the union anymore. And which side are This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A 21-year-old man from Southampton is dead following a tragic car accident Tuesday morning. The accident occurred at the Pomeroy Meadow Road intersection in East Hampton around 6.40 a.m., when the driver failed to stop at a stop sign, struck a guardrail, and finally came to a stop in a nearby wooded area. The identity of the victim has not been released, and state police are investigating the cause of the fatal accident. The slow march toward a new Jones Library in Amherst continues. Town Council has now approved site plans and special permits for the renovation and expansion project, even as a crucial request to authorize additional spending has yet to be voted on. The planning board passed the site plans, special permits, and waivers at their December 6th meeting, allowing the project to bypass setback and traffic study requirements. The project was supposed to cost $46 million, much of which will be paid for by the state, but the funding authorization request asked for an additional $10 million in potential borrowing. Faculty members at Amherst College are calling for the college to divest its endowment from corporations and weapons manufacturers that profit from the war between Israel and Hamas. About 30% of the professors at the college have signed a letter calling for the divestment, according to the Gazette. The letter points out that while Hamas initiated the conflict by killing Israeli citizens, more than 10 times as many Gazan citizens have been killed over the last six weeks. More than two-thirds of those killed are believed to have been women and children. More than 1,000 college educators in New England have joined the call for a permanent ceasefire. 
Partly to mostly sunny this morning, partly sunny this afternoon with a few flurries flying around. Breezy, a high of 38 to 42. Scattered clouds tonight, evening temperatures in the 30s, overnight lows of 18 to 24. Mostly sunny tomorrow, but cooler, a high of 34 to 38, up into the upper 40s for Friday. 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Sweeten up your holiday parties with gingerbread cookies, chocolate hazelnut seashells, vanilla Hanukkah cookies, and mini Dresden Stolen. It's all at the co-op. Sweet treats, the holiday roast, fresh seafood, beer and wine, and lots and lots and lots of local farm fruits and vegetables. Do a little gift shopping, too. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. High school is a time of discovery, of exploring the world and shaping your future. What happens in high school has a deep and lasting effect. At the Hartsbrook High School, that means discovering more than the right answers to test questions. Textbooks give way to learning through experience, experiments, research, and group projects. Hartsbrook students take their science studies into the woods and social studies into the community, working for food justice and applying their own solutions to issues such as climate change or food insecurity. They connect with students worldwide with the Model U and participate in exchange, traveling to and hosting students from countries around the world. They cultivate an unwavering sense that they can take action in the world and can handle adversity. Is Hartsbrook the right school for your teenager? For parents and caregivers, there's a Discover Hartsbrook High School evening February 6th. There are visiting days for students January 23rd and February 6th. Register at hartsbrook.org. The Hartsbrook School, Waldorf education, early childhood through high school on a 55-acre campus on Bay Road in Hattie. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It wasn't necessary and it probably wasn't even appropriate on the one hand. I don't want that to sound like I don't support schools. I have a long history of supporting schools, certainly longer than any one of those city councilors. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP News, Information and the Arts. Welcome back to Talk the Talk. This is Cool Films with Larry Hot, Florence-based Emmy Award-winning filmmaker Larry Hot. Larry, you have some films you recommend for us today. We really are all ears. Talk to us. This is a film that's perfect for cool films because it's a very, very cool film. It is about Nikki Giovanni. Do you know who Nikki Giovanni is? You might know the name. I do. I do. All right. Nikki Giovanni is an 80-year-old now black poet, a woman. And this film is called, curiously, Going to Mars, the Nikki Giovanni Project. I hesitated to watch this film. It wasn't on my list. I just thought, you know, what is it talking about here? <laughs> is it, they're sending the poet to Mars? Uh, is this a film about space? Is it a film about poetry? Well, yes. The answer is yes to all of that. Nikki Giovanni is quite a character. I just know about her as a black poet. I had no idea that she's basically a rock star. She walks into a room, hundreds, maybe 500 people, and they stand up and cheer. And when she's finished, they're cheering even louder than when she came in. She's amazing. She's charismatic. And she's, I think she's like four foot 11. 
You know, she's one of those one of those people that just exudes energy and intelligence and empathy. So this film about poetry and a poet. Well, what is a film documentary about a poet? have to be it has to be a poem itself it has to be a film they call it an experimental experimental film i don't really go with that here it's not experimenting any with the form what it does is it's putting up incredibly appropriate images but sometimes strange images of nikki giovanni when she's reading her poems or there's an actress also reading the poems with her or for her uh, nikki giovanni was born in 1943 so do the math. She comes of age in the 60s. And the key element in this film that gets across her personality and the challenges she faces is an interview with James Baldwin. And we're going to hear a clip in a second from the trailer. But I want to just set this up a little bit. You can hear in James Baldwin's voice his condescension, um, how he's treating a woman 20 or 30 years younger than he is, as if he knows everything and she knows nothing, and how she comes back at him. So let's hear the clip. I was born in Knoxville, Tennessee, but I am an earthling. And it's an honor to introduce this woman. He is the most renowned black poets this world has ever seen. There is no you without this goddess. So you're sort of a prophet. I would hate to think of myself as being a prophet. Prophets die. I'm also a dreamer, but I don't understand why my dreams can't come true. So I will continue to do what my grandfather could not do. I will fight. I'm a fighter. The history of our people is a great history, and it's our duty to tell that story. This is not a poem. This is an explosion. This is a rocket. Let's ride. This is a rocket. Let's ride. That's really the basis of this film. She really does want to go to space. And try to figure out throughout the film, what is it about space that attracts her? At one point, she says that black women should go to space because they've been learning how to survive here, and they would be able to survive all the hardships in space. We can learn lessons from what African-Americans in the United States have had to deal with, so that if they were foreigners in another planet, they would better colonize it, which is an interesting idea, using the word colonize. Uh, does she want to go to space because she wants to get away, that everything is that's so terrible here? And at one point in the film, she says, I want to die in space. I want them to open that door and just send me out and let me float away. And of course, the images they use with this from the NASA archives are beautiful and, and, and warm. You know, space is this cold, empty void, but not for Nikki Giovanni. Can I just interrupt, Larry? Yeah. I, I assumed from the title that it has to do with John Gray's book, Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Be Venus, and that eponymous no not a, not at all not doesn't at all. doesn't come up nothing about gender here uh, she does describe herself as a queer black artist interestingly she's married to a white woman about her age that is never mentioned in the film although she is such a black activist not a black separatist but everything she writes about is from the black experience 
there's a moment in the film that stands out. It just jumps out. During the apartheid protests about South Africa, she says, I don't believe in that. I don't think we should be wasting our time with this. This is not our issue. And she wears a Krugerrand, you know, a, a gold coin from South Africa. But what she's saying is not that she thinks apartheid is right. It's that she thinks that American black activists should put their energy here in the United States. Don't waste your time in that country. Things are bad enough here. So I'm saying you should watch this film not because she's a great poet, and the poetry in the film is wonderful, but because the filmmaking is poetry itself. And it, it matches the style and the power of her poems. One thing, one thing I learned about Nikki Giovanni is how she responds to other people. So in the James Baldwin interview, he constantly is saying to her, sweetheart, baby, oh man, it is cloying. It makes your skin crawl. Mm. And she challenges it and comes right back at him. But when she's in front of an audience, she is so loving and kind. And of course, it's a book about a poem, about a poet, so she's signing uh, her poetry to many people coming up to her. And for each person, she has something kind to say. Right? So I like the contrast here between the way she comes back at James Baldwin and the way she treats strangers. Right? I found her a loving person and somebody that I would want to meet, and now somebody that I want to read. What was the debate between her and James Baldwin? If you don't, can you just recap that quickly? Well, they talked about everything, and of course, the whole debate is not in the film. It's a, it's a, it's an interview, but it's more about what should activism be and what should we do and should we separate ourselves from society about black separatism. Um, and he's lecturing her, he, and they're both smoking cigarettes like chimneys, and <laughs> the smoke is was whirling around their heads. He's saying, "Sweetheart, sweetheart, sweetheart, you know, you just don't understand." And she's saying. I might look like a baby, <laughs> but I'm as grown Go up. Tell her about but, but I'm as grown up as you. Yeah. <laughs> and there's another. Well, got, is an, the the project the Nikki Giovanni project is is that a reference to the filmmaker's project of telling her story or her? I that's a good question. She called it a project. You know, most filmmakers when they doing a major film they call it a project, and I think it is the Nikki Giovanni project. But I think they that has a double entendre. You know, that's her, it's her project and her life. And it's also the, the project of pulling this film together. Uh, it took years. Any of these big films do. Uh, I looked at the credits, and the credits are important here because every single left-wing sponsor, <laughs> Just Films, the Ford Foundation, uh, Women Make Movies, what all, they're all here. Um, but HBO picked up the film. So Bill, it, so I think you had something for Larry Hutt. Larry you make me want to see this film. I can't wait to see this film. And I want to share with you. They're paying me. Uh, to say, <laughs> but I'm sorry. Say that again, Bill. Yeah, I want to see the film. You make me want to see the film. And I want to share with you that uh, was, I can't remember how many, many years ago it was that someone said, have you ever heard of this poet, Nika Giovanni? And I said, no, I don't know her. And the next day, a collection of her poetry was uh, in my hands, and I read it, and it 
absolutely blew me away. So moving, so accessible, so remarkable, such an incredible use of language and imagery. She is amazing. And to find out that this film about her and her work and her dreams and her all of that just makes me want to see the film. Tell us the title again and where we can see it. It's called Going to Mars, The Nikki Giovanni Project. It's on HBO. And something you said, Bill, reminded me of a curious moment in the film when her wife is interviewed only once, who is an academic in Knoxville the University, and they brought her, Nikki Giovanni, to the school. That's how they met. And the, she had to fight the faculty in the English department who said that her poetry was too accessible. That too the, ex, accessible. Ex, too accessible, that it was too easy to understand, and that they wanted somebody who was more, they didn't use the word dense, but I think that's what she was going for, more academic, more respected in the academic community. And she fought and won and got her on the faculty and got her tenure. And they, they don't go into this there, but it's curious to me that Nikki Giovanni, after a, a life of being on the edge and not having a lot of money, she doesn't answer that question, which is obviously why does she take this job, but it seems that she wanted that secure base. And then she could really fly. Uh, maybe that's what going to Mars is. Maybe that's what she wants to do. She wants to be unfettered. She wants to go into space without any controls. We'll be back with more cool films with Larry Hot right after this. awful small affair to the girl with the mousy hair but her mommy is yelling no and her daddy has told her to go but her friend is nowhere to be seen now she walks through her sunken dream to the seat with the clearest view and she's hooked to the silver screen But the film is a sad thing for For she's lived it ten times or more she More Talk the me. Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Rachel Maddow's new book is Prequel, The American Fight Against Fascism. Get it now at Broadside Bookshop. Democracy Awakening, Notes on the State of America, is new from Heather Cox Richardson. And The Vaster Wilds is a new novel from Lauren Groff, a story of faith and survival set in the wilderness of early New England. Order any book on the Broadside website. Have it delivered anywhere or pick it up at the store. Then browse a bit. Broadside, Northampton's independent bookshop. You've been miserable with joint pain for so long. You want and deserve relief, but you just keep putting off that call to QC Kinetics. Okay, now's the time. Listen up. QC Kinetics is rolling out something huge for the first time ever. It's a voucher for $500 off your first joint pain treatment. That's right, $500 off. Whether it's your knees, hips, shoulder, or back, the QC Kinetics voucher applies to any area. But this is a limited time offer, so no more putting off that call. QC Kinetics is the largest regenerative clinic in the country with 
with tens of thousands of satisfied patients who are able to get lasting relief with no surgery, no drugs, and no downtime. So reach out to the team at QC Kinetics today and ask them, how can I get a $500 off voucher? They'll walk you through the steps and get you started on your way to relief. Don't wait. This is a limited time offer. Call for your free consultation today. QC Kinetics, 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. Limited time only. Not valid with any other offer. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts and messages from community nonprofits. We continue our Cool Films with Larry Hot segment. Larry, you have another film to tell us about, please. I have a related film. It's called it's called Lift, L-I-F-T. And it's about the artistic director of the New York Ballet, Steve Menendez, who is a Hispanic black man. And the curious beginnings of this film are his entering a homeless shelter where he grew up. Wow. And he is telling the story of how he came out of that shelter and became a ballet dancer. He works now uh, as the artistic director, but also uh, the program with the program Lift. I don't know if Lift stands for anything, but the meaning is lifting kids out of poverty. And the New York City Ballet has a program where it takes not promising kids, just any kids, and teaches them how to dance. Let's hear a clip from Lift. It's a film you can see on Amazon and Apple TV. And it goes directly, it's connected directly with Going to Mars, the film we just talked about about Nikki Giovanni. It's the impact of arts on children. My name is Steven. I came out of this shelter here because I joined ballet. I've come back to continue that program. It's 20 years later. I've traveled around the world performing and choreographing. I was the obvious choice to mentor these kids because I was someone who had gone through what they're going through. I want to be a dancer in a ballet. But going through that shelter, there's some trauma. Yeah, I don't feel like it. Okay, let's see. Did you faint? We lost our home because my brother was having heart problems. We went from shelter to shelter to living in people's houses. You just heard the voice of Yolansi, a seven-year-old, talking about the problems of moving from shelter to shelter. Well, this film is is uh, made over a 10-year period. So we watched Yolansi as a seven-year-old become a 17-year-old in this dance program, as well as two other ch- children that the producers and directors follow. But Yolansi is the one that I can't get out of my mind because Yolansi, it's not a straight trajectory for Yolansi. She turns out to get in trouble all the time. And the only thing that rescues her, that keeps her in school is this art program, is this dance program. But I mean in real trouble. You know, she's threatened with being expelled for violent behavior. At the same time, she has stature and she has poise and she has talent. 
And as one of the reviews of this film points out, this is not a bloody toe ballet film. This is not about what it takes to become a great dancer. This is about what it takes to get kids out of poverty and to show them that there's another world. This is what Nikki Giovanni does with her work, and this is what Steve Menendez does with his work. I watched these films back-to-back by accident. I just said, okay, what's the next film on my list? And there it was, and I thought, okay, lift lifted me up. It made me think about what the possibilities of art are. I did a film about the SciTech band uh, in Springfield, the SciTech High School, and how the band changes the lives of kids. Same idea here, but filmed over 10 years. The power, you can see how these kids change and how their families appreciate it. And of course, like all kinds of films like this, they have to end with the big performance. And this one is just as, as delightful and satisfying as any of those films that have a big uh, you know, rock'em, sock'em, kisses you never got ending. So I highly recommend Lift and Going to Mars, the Nikki Giovanni Project. Are these going to get your vote? They all get my vote. Every one of them gets my vote. <laughs> You're going to do a recap of your favorites for 2023, right? Uh, I'm actually going to spend going to spend most of the next year doing that. <laughs> Bill. And I, yeah, very quickly, for those of our listeners who have not seen Larry Hott's film, The SciTech Band, Pride of Springfield, go online, go watch it. You are going to be so moved. It's a brilliant film as well. Thanks, Bill. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today, listeners. Stick up, stick up, bend up, pick up, pick up, tell them lies and tell them lies and put your face on fire. Run and take your friends and never dream of a way. Kettles keep a crying to the street full of zombies. Kids are killing kids and leave the kids on the army. Rather than the can you say The Literacy Project is the place to go if you are an adult looking to improve your reading, writing, and math skills, or if you want help preparing for the high school equivalency exam and preparing for college. To find out about our free classes in Franklin and Hampshire counties, check us out online at literacyproject.org or call us in Northampton at 413-584-6755. If you want to learn, the Literacy Project is the place for you. Imagine working hard for so many years and reaching your retirement only to find out there's an issue with your pension or 401k. Unfortunately, it's a problem too many Americans face. The New England Pension Assistance Project can help you get the benefits you've earned by providing free legal help. Contact the New England Pension Assistance Project at 888-425-6067 or visit them online at pensionhelp.org slash New England, a public service from the U.S. Administration on Aging's Pension Counseling and Information Program. WHMP Northampton and WRSI. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman, and we are really grateful to be joined today by Michael Clare, who is the defense correspondent for The Nation magazine, has been for decades and decades, and as well as the professor, is Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies at Hampshire College and a prolific author on these topics. Michael Clare, I want your perspective, we want your perspective on what is happening in the Israel-Hamas war today. What do you see as the resolution of this, what do you make of Biden saying to Netanyahu, no, enough is enough? Those are three questions, Bill, and it would take the rest of the time to answer them all with justice. But what's happening is that Israel is slowly pounding away at what remains of Israel's, of the 
Hamas resistance in Gaza by, by a process of methodical destruction of the infrastructure of Gaza itself, destroying its buildings and in that way trying to destroy the tunnels in which Hamas's leadership is reputedly hiding. And it's probably success succeeding at that by through a sheer process of destruction. And in the end, uh, they will probably destroy most of Hamas's leadership uh, along with most of the infrastructure of Gaza and at a very high cost. So on a tactical level, uh, they are, appear to be succeeding in their intent of destroying the Hamas military capacity. Now, this will be a tactical victory, what Lloyd Austin, the U.S. Secretary of Defense, would call a tactical victory of destroying the Hamas military capacity, but will represent a very possibly a strategic defeat in the sense uh, that it will uh, leave Israel exposed to hostility from the rest of the world, especially its neighbors, in a way that will leave it at risk indefinitely into the future. Okay. When you say that Israel may be able to destroy Hamas's leadership, I question that because it seems to me that out of this destruction, this absolutely horrifying destruction of not only the infrastructure uh, of, of Gaza, but of what some enormous percentage of the housing. I mean, there'll be no jobs, there'll be no housing, but there will be people who will rise up to leadership positions. And a lot of Hamas's real leadership is not in Gaza. The Hamas will replace its leadership. You know, this is an open question. I, I meant the military leadership of Hamas, not the political leadership. I think Israel will succeed in its in its tactical goal of destroying the armed wing of Hamas that's still resident in Gaza. M many of them may have escaped uh, some one way or another. And as you say, the political leadership is outside the country. Uh, it, what remains to be seen is what kind of occupation Israel will establish once the fighting ends or, or the heavy fighting ends. And that's where the dispute with President Biden comes up. Uh, President Biden is calling for some kind of post-war occupation, post-war political uh, establishment in the Gaza that is under Palestinian leadership, not, not Hamas, of course, but from the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, led by Fatah, the uh, other main faction of the Palestinians. Some sort of Palestinian leadership, he says, is essential. And uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu of Israel says, no way, we're not going to allow any kind of Palestinian leadership in Gaza. It's going to be under Israeli military rule for the indefinite future. That's where the divide lies, and this uh, would mean this is untenable for America's Arab allies like Saudi Arabia and Jordan, 
in the Middle East and will create a cri an, an indefinite crisis for the United States because uh, those countries, uh, Saudi Arabia and the others, are under immense pressure from their own population to see a Palestinian le uh, leadership arise, a two-state solution be the outcome of all this. And if that's not the outcome, then those countries will come under attack from militant forces. And you could see a, a catastrophic uprising throughout the Middle East, like the Arab Spring. Professor Michael Clare, my, my question, I really have no idea what the answer to this question is. What did Hamas think prior to October 7th was going to be the result of the horrific invasion of Israel? Did, did they foresee everything you just described and go ahead with it anyway? Was it? I, I just don't understand what they thought they were doing. I, I think they acted out of utter despair. And if you read the literature of, of Palestinians who are not part of Hamas— just Palestinian authors and poets, uh, they were f full of utter despair that the promise of a Palestinian state was disappearing. Uh, the support from other Arab countries was, was disappearing. Their cause was uh, becoming a lost cause. There was no future for them. So that, they, they were... They were feeling that a bleak future with no no end, and I think that Hamas felt leadership felt that 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 had to be broken one way or the other at whatever cost, and uh, to bring the Palestinian cause back into the forefront of of global consciousness, and in that they succeeded, and you know in the most brutal way imaginable. But I, I think that's what they intended. And, you know, I think they thought of this as a martyrdom enterprise. I, I, I assume they, they weren't thinking that this was going to be a military uh, operation in which they would survive. I think they must have assumed that in the end they would all perish, but that they would, in a glorious martyrdom, um, somehow retrieve the Palestinian cause. One aspect of this, Michael Clare, that I also don't understand is what Israel has seen as its end game. It said that this is an existential moment for the country of Israel. Hamas has to be eradicated. But Hamas has been ruling Gaza uh, for uh, decades and decades. Um, yes, they engaged in this horrific terrorist attack uh, but Hamas had that capability. Part of the blame for the, let's put this in, I don't want to say success, but part of the results of that attack is because of the is Israelis' uh, intelligence failure and the failure of the IDF to protect uh, people who are clearly vulnerable and very close to the border. So what is it that... Israel, why, why has Israel decided that this was an existential moment when Hamas has been in control of Gaza for so many years? Well, now, Bill, um, when we talk about Israel, as is so often the case when we're talking about places around the world, we have to d distinguish between the Israeli people 
uh, and the Israeli leadership, namely Netanyahu, Prime Minister Netanyahu, who basically uh, has been calling the shots here. And he, uh, he, he formed a new government in the past uh, year and to stay in power, uh, to avert court cases against him, among other things, uh, formed an alliance with far-right parties, and they demanded uh, increased settlements in the West Bank and so on and, and other measures, uh, all of which uh, distracted him from paying attention to the intelligence reports. He was, there was no intelligence failure. They, the intelligence agencies reported on the developments in Gaza, but he was just preoccupied with his political program. So it wasn't Israel uh, that made these errors. It was the national leadership uh, centered in the prime minister's office. Dan Torres, you have a question for... Uh, I do. It's about Israeli politics before the attack. And what I was reading in the news was that the Israeli government was in a crisis, which some said was unprecedented since 1948. And what was happening is they wanted to pass a law where the Israeli parliament could overrule the Supreme Court. And there were members of the elite very much willing to no longer serve in the military, willing to rebel against their government if this law was to be passed, where Parliament could supersede any decision by the Israeli Supreme Court. Interestingly, this was having sort of an identity crisis for the country, and then the attacks happen, and everybody rally around the, the government and Netanyahu. And so I'm wondering from you, uh, what does that mean for the future of Israeli politics? Will it continue to move to the right now that national security usurps that, or does that come back into play? Well, see, now this bears on the, on the current moment. Why is Netanyahu persisting in this grinding war in Gaza, uh, an all-out war uh, with no mercy and no end in sight? Because he knows, he said this out loud, and everybody, everyone in Israel knows that when the war ends, there's going to be some kind of reckoning for his failures, uh, his faili multiple failures as prime minister to heed the advice of his generals and the intelligence staff about what was happening in Gaza with his, because of his obsession with, uh, with silencing parliament, not silencing, but curbing the powers of parliament and pursuing his far-right agenda. There will be a reckoning, and a majority of Israelis, I imagine, from, from reading the press, are, are going to demand some kind of accounting for the failures. Uh, this, this was a mammoth political failure on his part, and everybody understands that. And in fact, there was a report of Hamas's intent, what, going back a year, and Netanyahu did nothing about it? Actually, if I could quickly add to that, actually there are reports that he was giving money through Qatar to Hamas because he was under the belief that they wanted economic development. Apparently Hamas did this pull your, your wool over your eye thing, being like, no, if you just give us money, we'll do economic development. We're not into hurting you anymore in the Israeli. Well, that, no, go that, ahead. That's not quite accurate. Uh, Netanyahu's primary strategic goal was to prevent the emergence of a Palestinian state at any cost. 
And he believed that the money going to Hamas was, as you say, quieting it. But it, the, intent, the intent, that is to say that Hamas would be preoccupied with nation building within Gaza itself. But the, his real enemy, as he, his real challenge as he saw it, was the, the West Bank, the, possibility, the likelihood that there would be more and more pressure in the West Bank to um, get rid of the Palestinian Authority and its corrupt relationship with the Israeli government and press, for, for, press harder for the emergence of a, of a Palestinian-ruled state in the West Bank. And so he wanted to keep Gaza silent so he could devote all of his attention to the West Bank. That's why he wasn't paying attention to these intelligence reports. Michael Clare, I have, albeit an unfair question, I have the question for you, which is, if you had the power to affect U.S. policy right now with respect to this horrific war, what would you do that either is being done or that isn't being done? Well, uh, you know, it, it's, it, it, that's, that's very hard because the president has aligned himself so closely with Netanyahu. And I, I, I think you have to say that, the, that Israel is not the 51st state of the United States of America. We, 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 we have much to admire in Israel it, it, uh, when it was a truly functioning democratic state, and we have close ties with Israel. Many American citizens have relatives in Israel, so we have close ties with Israel, but it is not a state of the United States of America. Our interests are different from Israel's interests, and what Israel is currently doing under Netanyahu in Gaza is hurting America's long-term interests. That's what the president has to say. And from now on, we're going to pursue our interests. And our interests are a ceasefire now. That's what is in best, because the whole world is demanding that. The UN Security Council voted 13 to 1 for a ceasefire now. And only the United States vetoed that. And that is damaging to American interests because it is alienating us from all of our allies and the rest of the world and damaging our capacity to achieve our main interests. Ukraine, for example, I would put at the top of the list right now. We're abandoning Ukraine because of, of, of this. So if we say American interests come first, ceasefire now. We're going to continue our conversation with Michael Clare, Professor Emeritus at Hampshire College of Peace and World Security Studies, Nation Magazine defense correspondent, prolific author whose insights are so, I think, really respected and valuable. We'll be right back. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. If we didn't go for this project, the cost to repair the schools is estimated at 80 million, and we don't get help with that. So this vote is the absolutely the smartest financial choice, and it's getting a building that we desperately need for our educators and for our students. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP, news, information, and the arts. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday Peter Haven's Restaurant? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. 
Peter Haven's Restaurant is a cozy Brattleboro bistro serving refined new American cuisine. Chef Zach Corbin creates delicious French-inspired dishes with a twist. And now you can use their gift certificates at their oyster bar too. It's right next door. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. I'm not sure if opposites attract, but most couples differ greatly in their views about household finances. I'm Francis Rayum, the money doctor, with Hug Your Money. Money is a very volatile topic, and most seem to either argue about it or rarely discuss it. A sort of division of labor emerges, one partner becoming the steward of household finances, the other less directly involved. This arrangement may work until a stressor is introduced, college expenses, budgeting issues, impending retirement, etc. That's when sparks can fly. Each person's perspective is quite different, and it's likely only a short-term solution if any will arise. The Hug Plan presents an easy-to-follow, long-term solution that helps get both partners on the same page, alleviating stress and inspiring them to manage their finances successfully. I'm Francis Ray, I'm the Money Doctor. We now offer advanced tools and financial coaching using our patented system, all under one umbrella. For more information and to schedule your free consultation, visit our website at hugyourmoney.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back with Professor Michael Clare. Um, Bill. Yeah, let's, well, there's so much more to talk about with the conflict, the ongoing conflict, the war going on between Israel and Hamas. But while we have you, Michael Clare, we want to spend some time gaining your perspective, listening to your perspective on the United States and, well, what we are doing and what Congress is doing, and are we going to continue to support Ukraine? Talk to us about that. So for many people, this is a very sad moment. There are many, many people in the United States and Europe and around the world who uh, had expected that the Ukrainians would have a major breakthrough this summer, a counteroffensive. They would drive Russian forces out of the territory uh, that uh, th those forces, Russian forces had occupied uh, since 2022, since February 2022, and that didn't happen. The Russian, uh, the Ukrainian counteroffensive failed in its objectives. Um, and there's a lot of sadness about that, particularly as Russia has continued its attacks on civilian facilities and civilians in Ukraine itself. And it looks like it's going to be a difficult winter for civilians in Ukraine and a lot of hardship uh, with no let up in sight. Uh, so there's, there's a, a lot of pessimism and discouragement about that. And it looks like the Republicans in the U.S. Congress are fighting hardball about their primary issue, which is the border, because that's what riles up their base, and they're not going to give an inch. So we're at an impasse there, and it means that moving forward, uh, Ukraine is going to have to fight on with diminished U.S. aid. Whatever happens in Congress... Uh, they're, they're not going to get the level of assistance they were receiving before. That seems to be likely. So Ukraine is going to have to adjust its tactics to uh, fighting with less support from the U.S. 
and Europe is not going to be able to make up the difference. Uh, so it's going to it, it it looks like it's going to be a a a hard battle ahead uh, with a lot of loss of life and not much change in the battlefield. That's the way it looks to me. And this is a kind of battle that favors Russia more than Ukraine. It's just a bigger country with a larger population, a larger industrial base. And it seem, and Russia seems to have maneuvered the economic boycotts and, and sanctions and continues to earn enough money to keep the war running. Uh, so this is a discouraging prospect for many people. Well, let me ask you, Michael, Claire, while we're on that topic, I, I think there's some good news. It's embodied in a U.S. intelligence report that was released um, in uh, coordination with uh, President Biden's uh, news conference later that day. That report, the U.S. assessment, was declassified and said that since uh, Russia invaded their full-scale invasion in February of 2022 with 360,000 Russian personnel, 87% of them were killed or injured or are out of the battlefield. Um, that's 315,000 Russian troops. That of the, uh, I think, 3,100 tanks, 2,200 of them were destroyed. It, it demonstrates a terrible, terrible loss by the Russian military in Ukraine. And I'm wondering whether that in some way offsets what you were saying about the, the, the oh, uphill climb that Ukraine has. Yeah. Well, let me say first, I, I, I deplore all loss of life in this horrible war. And those Russians who perished are victims in my mind as much as anybody else. That you know, they had a little choice in the matter. They never were told they were going to fight in Ukraine. They were all told it was military exercises and there never was going to be a war. And I, I mourn for them and their families who have all been lied to. So, you know, this is another part of the horror of the, Ukraine, of the, of the Putin uh, dictatorship uh, is the way that they are f forced into battle, whereas so many in Ukraine are volunteers uh, who are, you know, voluntarily fighting for the defense of their country. There's none of that in Russia. Thank you for reminding us of that. Yeah. Uh, but... Uh, the thing is that, that Russia went into the war with corrupt, incompetent generals, many of whom have died uh, along with the others. And uh, Putin has managed to replace them with more competent generals, and they've learned too from the war uh, how to fight. And uh, then they d discover they're not very good at offensive operations, but they're very good at defensive operations using mines and drones and artillery. Um, they've really, uh, those early soldiers have been replaced with more capable generals and forces that are able to inflict serious damage onto the Ukrainian military. Uh, so Michael, it's kind of an impasse. Yeah. Michael Clare, you're, you're a defense expert. Leave aside for a moment the question of whether the Republicans could force Biden to do things he really doesn't want to do uh, on the southern border in order to receive the aid that the military aid and as well as the humanitarian aid that Ukraine needs. Is the United States really capable of saying, OK, Putin, you, you win, Ukraine is yours? 
I mean, wouldn't that have disastrous consequences for NATO and the United States going forward? I, I think that that Biden is in a terrible position, and it, it's it's a lot of it is his own fault, as far as I'm concerned, by uh, first uh, placing Ukraine in the forefront as the cutting edge of the West's struggle with autocracy and dictatorship, and now he's given all, giving all of his attention to Israel. And, and the war against Hamas and trying to elevate that as the cutting edge of the global struggle. And that just doesn't sell in the rest of the world. And, and, and it's divided his capacity, absorbed his capacity to make the case for Ukraine. Uh, so this is partly a trap of his own making. This is Dan, a quick question yes. for you about funding for Ukraine. How come the Democrats, before they lost the House, how come they couldn't have appropriated the funds to Ukraine that could have covered, let's say, the cost of war between now and the, you know, uh, the next election? So before the Democrats lost the majority, why couldn't they have just given Ukraine the additional funding that they were asking now? How does that work? Uh, oh. That's is that, a big, is that a complicated answer? You complicated can't, you can't future fund. I mean, for the, nobody thought the war would persist, you know, would go on this long and that it would require so many hundreds of billions of dollars that it— But it's only so, been 70 or something, right, that they've given a direct appropriations. So it, has it even reached 100? Oh, it's yeah. they've uh, so far appropriated $110 billion, okay. which was, you know, was a lot of money. And yeah. Europeans have put up a lot of money. The and, Germans specifically. Right? Yes. Yeah. And nobody realized how much this would turn out to be an artillery war where you're using tens of thousands of shells a day. And nobody is producing that number of shells Anywhere, you know, in the yeah. West. So they're uh, depleting much more faster than they're replenishing. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Russia's game plan on this, Michael Clare, is what? And if you could direct your attention to get it to the point where Donald Trump assumes the presidency again, is that part of the game plan here for Putin? Well, he certainly hopes that that proves to be the case. Right now, he's gloating. Uh, Putin is is enthralled because, as I said, Biden's attention has been divided or, or or distracted by what's happening in Israel and Gaza, and and his allies in other parts of the world are uh, are not on the same page as the U.S. is. So. He's had a hard time corralling world support for Ukraine at this moment. Meanwhile, Putin is going around uh, the Middle East. He was in Saudi Arabia last week. He was in the United Arab Emirates. Uh, he was in Iran and shaking hands with our allies, you know, Saudi Arabia and the, and the UAE shaking hands with their leaders like everything is hunky-dory and there's no problem about Ukraine anymore. Uh, that's because we've lost uh, the, the kind of ties we had because of our support of Israel. Well, we are going to have to leave it there. Um, 
Michael Clare, I hope someday we can have you on and just talk about peace in the world. It would be... We should, I wish we could do that. I wish we could do that. Um, but thank you so much. You are an invaluable source of, uh, well, help in understanding these really complex and really demoralizing words. Yeah. There we go. We both just threw our hands up. Yeah, yes. <laughs> there. But thank you for joining us. We are going to sure. be right back with Marion Bullock, the city councilor from Greenfield. We're going to talk about, well, Matters Greenfield right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A 21-year-old man from Southampton is dead following a tragic car accident Tuesday morning. The accident occurred at the Pomeroy Meadow Road intersection in East Hampton around 6.40 a.m. when the driver failed to stop at a stop sign, struck a guardrail, and finally came to a stop in a nearby wooded area. The identity of the victim has not been released, and state police are investigating the cause of the fatal accident. The slow march toward a new Jones Library in Amherst continues. Town Council has now approved site plans and special permits for the renovation and expansion project, even as a crucial request to authorize additional spending has yet to be voted on. The planning board passed the site plans, special permits, and waivers at their December 6th meeting, allowing the project to bypass setback and traffic study requirements. The project was supposed to cost $46 million, much of which will be paid for by the state, but the funding authorization request asked for an additional $10 million in potential borrowing. Faculty members at Amherst College are calling for the college to divest its endowment from corporations and weapons manufacturers that profit from the war between Israel and Hamas. About 30% of the professors at the college have signed a letter calling for the divestment, according to the Gazette. The letter points out that while Hamas initiated the conflict by killing Israeli citizens, more than 10 times as many Gazan citizens have been killed over the last six weeks. More than two-thirds of those killed are believed to have been women and children. More than 1,000 college educators in New England have joined the call for a permanent ceasefire. Partly to mostly sunny this morning, partly sunny this afternoon with a few flurries flying around. Breezy, a high of 38 to 42. Scattered clouds tonight, evening temperatures in the 30s, overnight lows of 18 to 24. Mostly sunny tomorrow, but cooler, a high of 34 to 38, up into the upper 40s for Friday. 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. Last summer, Whalen Insurance finally did what a lot of insurance agencies around New England had done long ago. We partnered with a call center to handle routine things like a change of address. It went okay, but we're not going to continue. We found out that no matter how simple or complicated the matter at hand, you prefer to talk to us. As one longtime Whalen Insurance client told me, the people at the call center are great, but they're not Amy. I like knowing I can call and talk to Amy every time. I guess I should have known. Local people and local service are what sets Whalen Insurance apart from those big 1-800 insurance companies. When you want a quote, when you need help with a claim, or anything else, just call. Or come to our office on King Street. Talk to Amy, or Kelly, or Mindy, or Valerie, or Lori. We tried the call center, you tried the call center, and we found out that you prefer talking to us. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. Call 586 1,000. Why should the Federal Reserve have so much power over your IRA or 401k? Whether they create a new bubble with low interest rates or pop the last bubble with high interest rates, a group of unelected government officials has no business deciding your future. 
Hi, I'm Dr. Ron Paul, and this is just one more reason why I recommend a physical gold IRA from Birch Gold Group. Because precious metals are the best way to maintain your financial independence. And now you can hold gold inside of a tax-advantaged account. To learn more, text the word HEDGE to 989898. And my friends at Birch Gold will send you a free info kit on gold IRAs. Birch Gold is the only gold IRA company I trust, so text HEDGE to 989898 to request your free info kit right now. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We are really pleased to have with us Greenfield City Councilor Marianne Bullock, who uh, represents uh, Precinct 5 in Greenfield as a member of the 13-member city council. We just had a rather extraordinary election, certainly the mayoral part of the election in which uh, incumbent mayor Roxanne Wiedergartner lost a, uh, I think, by 72% of the vote came in for uh, city councilor Ginny DeSorger, who on January 2nd will become the mayor of Greenfield. I want to talk about budget shortfalls. We really want to talk about the schools. Bill has a number of questions for you, Counselor, but I just have to ask for a little bit of a recap. Um, And in particular, I want to focus on the fact that the relationship between Roxanne Wiedergartner and the city council became somewhat acidic, I think it's fair to say. And um, now that a counselor has been elected mayor, What's your forecast for us about the relationship between the council and mayor and getting stuff done? Yeah, I think the the hope, well, I'll start by saying these opinions are my own, not the opinion of the entire council as a whole. It's very rare that that happens. But, um, you know, I, I think the hope is really that the executive office will work uh, more closely and will be able to progress things forward um much faster with our with our newly elected mayor um i think because this mayor has most recently been on council there's a aligned understanding of the issues that are pertinent right now um, and that we've been trying to move forward as a council um and so my hope you know there's a few there's a we have some new council members uh there's some little bit of wild cardness there that I, I, you know, I'm feeling in this transition of just not knowing these people and having worked with the same council members for the last two years, we'll have to learn um, a lot about each other. But I think the hope is that there's going to be some more alignment in uh, pushing, pushing specific endeavors forward. Right. Phil, uh, no, go ahead, Bill. Yeah. Could you tell us what made the relationship between the city council of greenfield and the mayor so toxic and what it is that the new mayor will need to avoid to not repeat that mistake yeah i mean i can definitely tell you from my point of view what was going on but i i'm i'm well aware i'm like a newcomer to this i've only been on the council for two years i wasn't deeply entwined in greenfield politics before that i sort of came on because no one in my district was running and a few people asked and it was yeah i was like yeah sure i'll do it and had no idea what i was getting myself into when i got on i was so surprised how acrimonious it was between the mayor and the council like i really thought we were going to be talking about like 
potholes and sidewalks and um when i when i went and got my signatures around my my precinct i was like you know people would talk about partisan politics and i was like listen that's like nothing of partisan politics is even on my radar for what i want to do in this city like i want sidewalks all the way from my house to my kids school um so i think there's some you know there's some like long standing political greenfield politics that led into a lot of the a lot of the um bad relationship between the council and um and the mayor's current mayor's office and i think i can only assume that coming out of the pandemic which was a contentious political experience for many people the relationships between um elected officials and citizens was sometimes really tense i myself have had experience in the last two years where i'm like shocked with the sort of venom that people will come at you with just because you're an elected um in an elected position um and so i think everyone's hackles were kind of up uh but from my experience i will just say you know i you know, I have a relationship with Roxanne. Our relationship, I don't think, was toxic or was um, adversarial. Uh, I don't always agree with her, and I don't always like the way that she treats people, but I um, respect her as a woman in politics. And I think that that those tensions uh, arose a lot and there was a lot of citizens wanting to be heard and a space not being created by the executive office for those things for those citizens to be heard other than in like public comment which is you know you have two or three minutes depending on the night um and you're talking to the city council you're not talking to the mayor um and yeah so i think that it really broke down even for me in the last year the first year it seemed like there was some more stronger relationships things could move forward um but then there was just this lack of communication things would happen sometimes within the city uh one example i can give you is when the police chief was reinstated into into service after being um on leave through through the trial that he was on um the city council wasn't told that until a press release came out and the way that it came out was very damaging for the relationship between the mayor and the city council um and so i think those things just built and then honestly i think a lot of people gave gave up i think sometimes my fellow counselors because i continued to meet with the mayor up until you know we just met recently about the opioid abatement funds which is something i've been working on um and i think a lot of my fellow counselors were like why are you wasting your time and i'm like this is you know i signed on for this process and i have to work within this process even if i don't always like the rules so um yeah there's a lot of personalities on the city council too we're all you know we're all there um for different reasons and i think there was a, just a lot of butting heads but when i talked to the public um before the election a lot of it was about people not feeling heard and validated in their concerns bill before we went on uh, uh the air with marianne bullock 
uh, counselor from Precinct 5 in Greenfield. You, were, uh, you said you really wanted to talk about the budget and budget shortfalls, and in particular, Greenfield schools. Well, let's ask the counselors. Are the schools facing a shortfall? Will they be able to maintain the level of, I don't want to say level of service, will they, be, will they have, be able to maintain the same number of teachers and support staff? Will the kids have the same quality of education? Or is that really in jeopardy now in Greenfield? So we we are facing a shortfall. Um, we we know that's true. The you know I'm sure you all know the way that the budget works is it comes to us and we basically can the only budget we can add to is this is the school budget and we did that this year. Um, we put just about a million dollars back in back into the school budget that was that was taken out. Um, and that was through some sort of creative budgeting that some people really didn't agree with, the mayor's office didn't agree with, um, and and in the council, many of the counselors who voted in favor of its eyes, it was the lesser of two evils was the way to fund this, was to sort of, um, to not wait and backfill the budget, but to backfill some other areas of our, of our city's budget. And so, we are facing a shortfall. Their ESSER funds are going to um, disappear. Um, we're hoping, you know, in my mind, we the only way to raise revenue is to raise taxes, and people don't like that. Um, so we are going to have to figure that out. We just went through the tax rate setting uh, process for this year. I think we sent it into the state already. Um, but I think that there is some other creative ways that we are going to have to approach this budgeting season we're going to start a lot earlier this year hopefully is the plan we just talked about it in chairs uh, as a first agenda as after we move into our organizational meeting in january um you know there's there's a hope that the state will reimburse for some um foster care reimbursements that are that are possible that uh um a, a constituent who actually was was not elected to the city council but he ran for city council i was really hoping he would be elected uh has proposed and we've sort of lobbied the state to reimburse us for um there is also um a hope that there will we're in the process of redistricting right now and so that doesn't help us with funding but i think the other big issue that we have is that we lose a lot of money to families that choice out of our district. And so there needs to be a creative solution to getting families to send their children to Greenfield Public Schools. Um, and I think that will come from consistent long-term, like a consistent plan to fund over the long-term. Marianne Bullock, this is Dan. And in regards to schools, I wanna know, you mentioned uh, parents choicing out. But what are the other issues happening in Greenfield? Is it the population is declining and that's why the revenue isn't there for the schools? So it's parents choicing out? I mean, what's what's happening? Why isn't there, I guess, more revenue being generated for schools? Like, what are the structural issues is my question. Yeah, so that I that I think does come down to taxes, this which is like a whole nother issue that we hope to move forward in in the new year. Um, but we have had some issues within our assessor's office. And so we are hoping that 
businesses and high value properties will be start to pay their fair share of taxes, that there'll be fewer um, larger businesses getting TIFs and things that, that leave them out of the tax base and things like that. That's a start. Well, there is I, just, I, I, ahead, Bill. I have a question. I have a question. I want to return for just 30 seconds to the issue of the election. And it's, well, it, I, I don't know how to phrase this in a really uh, neutral way, but I'd love to know if you were surprised at the result, and in particular, whether you were surprised at the, the difference in the percentages, 73 to 27, that was a huge uh, win for uh, now Mayor-elect Sorger. Were you surprised? So um, I supported Councillor Disorder um, wholeheartedly. Um, she has really been a lovely friend to me through this process that I said earlier. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, I was I was surprised at the at the landslide victory um, that she received. I and I will just say, you know, I sort of tried to keep my hands out of it a little bit because it, you know, it was like. There's a very intense election and like I have my own life and two kids. I was like, I can't go that deep into this process, but I will say, you know, what I saw from the outside was Ginny worked her butt off. Like she walked the streets of Greenfield. I would see her people, her team walking the streets in their hoodies, like knocking on doors. Um, she hit every precinct she talked to people and you know like the other side may say like well that's great that but that doesn't give us um that you know that doesn't mean you're you're fit to fit to lead but i think that in terms of old like old school campaigning she did it she um she canvassed and she got people out to vote um even people my neighbors in my precinct who i've talked to over the years who are like i don't vote they went and voted this year um we did have a low turnout for voting in general, um, not lower than other off um, off election years where we were just electing, you know, city city positions. It wasn't significantly lower than that norm, but it was low. So I was, but I was surprised at the landslide victory that well, she experienced. Join the club. A lot of us were surprised at the extent of of that victory. We're going to continue our conversation with uh, City Councilor Marianne Bullock and all matters of Greenfield politics right after these messages. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. Which says we need to appeal to the wealthy white people of our region because the marginalized people do not have money, which is true, but as we know, that's what happens when you have centuries of policies that are oppressive, that are racist. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP, news, information, and the arts. 
What's Cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Sweeten up your holiday parties with gingerbread cookies, chocolate hazelnut seashells, vanilla Hanukkah cookies, and mini Dresden Stolen. It's all at the co-op. Sweet treats, the holiday roast, fresh seafood, beer and wine, and lots and lots and lots of local farm fruits and vegetables. Do a little gift shopping, too. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Sipping and shopping and strolling this Thursday in downtown Amherst. It's a party all over town. The stores will be aglow. Restaurants are doing dinner deals. There's a maker's market with a bar. 20 artisans inside the old Hastings. Sip and shop. Plus, horse-drawn carriage rides through town. Sip and shop and stroll in downtown Amherst. Festive and fun. This Thursday, 5 to 9. When you're going through a tough time and need to talk with a mental health care provider as soon as possible, walk into ServiceNet's clinic at 50 Pleasant Street in downtown Northampton any Wednesday between 10 and 2. We'll see you right away. Or call ServiceNet anytime to make an appointment. Talk therapy, medication management, and other specialized treatments. ServiceNet's team works together to provide the care you need all in one place. Walk in Wednesdays 10 to 2 or call anytime. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back with Greenfield City Councilor Marianne Bullock. And uh, Marianne, when uh, all these needs that Greenfield has, schools, uh, so many different needs, and it's not going to be able to cure them all by taxation this fiscal year. Um, there is no Proposition 2.5 override. How are you going to attack all these problems that, we all agree need to be resolved. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, the good thing is that I, I think the city council and the executive office is gonna have to work together. We've started the process of partnering with local legislators to advocate for our fair share of resources from the state in order to fund schools. Um, you know, the process that I mentioned earlier within the city to really go in and properly audit um, tax assessments, especially for commercial properties, um, and make sure that the city is receiving what it needs. There's, you know, there's was some other things that have been talked about last year in the budget, but I think what's gonna happen in this year's budget season, as we see this, as we see, you know, a sort of tightening of the belt is that we are going to have to think really thoughtfully um, about where we are putting our money and what the sort of foundations of commute, like public safety, community safety, basic needs in our in our city are, um, and make sure that we are funding those things in a way that that makes sense and. There's a lot of things in the budget that, you know, over my last few years of looking at budget books are the same every year. And then sometimes the, that money goes back to, to um, the city, but it's gonna have to be a thoughtful budget year. And the hope is that the, that the town, that the state will, will recognize um, and reimburse some of what we've been asking for. And really quickly, Marianne Bullock, you have these major projects that are coming up. You have the Lunt, cleanup, you have Wilson's uh, development. Um, well, give, us a, give us a moment of what's promising in Greenfield. 
Yeah, I think that there's a lot on the horizon for Greenfield. It's a really exciting time. I think that we're looking at, um, there's a, a bunch of exciting things downtown. The, the Wilsons gives us housing along with business, which is exciting. So um, I think we're in a good place as we go into this new. That's a great place year. to leave it. Let's leave it with a little optimism as the new year approaches. Thank you so much, Marianne Bullock. Thank you so much, listeners. Like Marianne, don't just talk the talk, walk the walk. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Hi, Tom Hartman here. Be sure to join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. Occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week for We the People. On 101.5 and 1400. Join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. WHMP. Are you or someone you know addicted to drugs? Narcotics Anonymous can help. NA has been helping addicts since 1953. We are recovering addicts who meet regularly to help each other stay clean. We offer meetings and services online and in person. To find one of our meetings or to get information on what services are offered, visit www.westernmassna.org or call us at 1-866-NA-HELP-YOU. That's 1-866-624-3578. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls.